This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. And now, Clarence McDonald is going to, uh, what's the word you use when you ask people to ask questions? I'll be the moderator. Moderator. Clarence, (laughs) moderate. Good afternoon. I'm going to be your friendly and affable moderator for this today. What we're doing is history of Motown. So... I've got people here that I'm going to introduce. I'm going to start with Marvin Augustus. Yeah, as I call your name, please come up. 1962, from Detroit, he came out here and started working with Motown, and he'll have lots of good stories for you. David Blumberg. actually was on staff for 11 years at Motown starting around 1968. Don Peake <laughs> yeah. started 1972 staff in Motown. And Detroit's own Sylvester Rivers. 1970 in Detroit. He moved out here to Los Angeles in 1974. So, who would like to start this off? Well, I might as well start it off, I think. <laughs> Why don't you start it off? I'll start it off. So anyway, I, I, I started working for Motown in 1972, and how I, I began was working as a copyist. And my first job with them was for James Carmichael, copying music for the Jackson 5. That's how I started. And I like to hang around the studio. My job was to to bring the music, deliver the music to the musicians on the session. And I would hang around and get to know the guys, producers, and so forth. Well, fast forward to 1977. We're working a session for uh, Gwen Gordy. She was the producer of the session. It was a big session, Horn and Strings. And I had delivered the music, which was my job. And uh, whoever copied the French horn parts didn't transpose the French horn parts. And nobody could hear that something was wrong. (laughs) Gwen Gordy, Ben Barrett, James Carmichael, nobody could hear the discrepancy of the French horn but me. And I was surprised I could hear it because I was deaf. I couldn't hear anything either. (laughs) But I did hear that. And when Gordy says to me, well, fix it, fix it, do something. <laughs> so I got on the talk back and told Carmichael, I said, James, we have a discrepancy with the French horns. Uh, bring the, take, a, take a 10 minute break and let me fix something, you know. And I did, I went in and fixed the parts, passed my So when Gordy says to me, well, what are you doing? What are you doing later? I says, well, I have no plans. Well, I'm, I'm gonna take you to lunch. So she did, she took me to lunch. And she asked me, what did I want to do? And I told her that I would love to produce and arrange for Motown Records. 
And she said, well, fine, fine. Uh, uh, bring me something. Let me hear what you've done. And I had invested all this money going into the studios and cutting demos and stuff, and I bought her my songs. Well, she loved the songs and says, well, let's try it for Diane. Let's try it for Diane. I'm talking about Diana Ross. And that's how I started my career as a producer and ranger for Motown Records in 1977. You know what we'll do next, and this is because of time constraints. Don Peak, I would like for you to do it next because he has to leave. He's actually got a job today, and I'm jealous. Hi. Um, thank you, Clarence. I'm very honored to be here and honored to be with this distinguished group. I paid him to say that. That's true. Well, I, mean, I didn't mean you. <laughs> oh, okay. I meant the rest of them. And so, um, I want to give you the West Coast perspective on that because they were still, in the beginning of the 70s, Motown still was very firmly entrenched in Detroit. And I got a phone call from Benjamin Barrett, known to the rest of us as Ben Barrett, and he said, Don, Motown's coming out here. This was 72, and I uh, want you to be a staff musician for Motown. And I was at that point, I was playing with Ray Charles, the other Ray Charles. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so I had, I had a lot of history with some of the people that worked with Motown. And so it was, um, was me and Ray Parker Jr., and Wawa Watson, David T. Walker was a mainstay. And uh, Wilton Felder from the Crusaders would play electric bass, even though in the Crusaders he played the saxophone. And the drummer was Gene Pello, uh, and we started making records. By the and way, Gene is now a policeman. Say it again? Gene is now a policeman. He is? Yeah, I found him. Right on. A year ago. Right on. Well, in those days, he was arresting those beats. <laughs> and, and Pello could play, man. Pello could play those drums. So then, then uh, we got introduced to a young man named Freddie Perrin. And he and Deke Richards and Fonce Mazel had a group called The Corporation. And they called me in and said, look, we want to do this chart. And they, they had written stuff out. And it was, boom, ba ba dee boom ba do boom ba do ba do dong ding dong dong ding dong And then David T. comes in, boom, dee 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 doo 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 Well, I was the guitar that played that line. And uh, it was a Jackson 5. It was called I Want You Back. And that's enough from me. <laughs> David Blumberg. I heard a record called Stop in the Name of Love, and I realized that that was the kind of music I was really interested in. And ended up, uh, I did one tune for a guy named Hal Davis called Rose-Colored Glasses of Love. And what he wanted me to do was to take the flute part off of uh, a Donovan record and put it on this R&B record. And I guess he didn't like what I did, and I ended up at a place called Venture Records, which was started by Clarence Paul and Mickey Stevenson. And Mickey Stevenson used to be the uh, vice president of Motown, so if you had a song and you wanted to get it on a record, Mickey Stevenson became a co-writer on your song. <laughs> or you didn't get a release. So Mickey came out and started his own company called Venture Records, and he brought Clarence Paul. Well, Clarence... I went to see him, and I had gone around town trying to get work, and everybody would put on my tape, take it off, and hand it back to me and say, don't have anything for you. I did that with Clarence, and he goes, hey, man, you want to date 21 pieces in two weeks? So I ended up with uh, a guy named Toby Ben and uh, 
Joe Sample on piano, Wilton Felder on bass, and Paul Humphreys on drums. And I worked there for about a year and then ended up back with Hal Davis. And I got an idea of kind of a contrast. Hal Davis had an office on Vine Street, and when you went up to his office, it was like the 17th floor. He'd be the only one there, and he was wearing these mirror sunglasses. And Hal was like a very imposing presence, and um, as we all know. And he kind of was jealous of the fact that I was working with Clarence Paul and Mickey Stevenson, so he decided to start working me. And the first act I started to work with was the Jackson Five. And I did a song called Zippity Doodah. <laughs> and what was interesting about that is he says, now this is what I want. And he played me a song that Sylvester over here played on called Too Many Cooks Spoil the Brew. Ba, 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 da, 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 da. He says, that's what I want on Zippity Doodah. <laughs> so we went in and we cut that, and he took me up to Barry's house where Sidney Poitier was reading a newspaper, and there's the Jackson 5, their first record. This is the first song I've done, and they're singing it for Sidney Poitier. And Barry says, I like it. That's good. <laughs> so that was the start, and I ended up, uh, Hal worked me for about 11 years, uh, off and on, and I ended up working for all kinds of other producers at Motown and other people because of it. And we got two hit records together. So it was uh, a fruitful experience, and it was uh, training under fire. Thank you. Amen. Sylvester Rivers. Well, Clarence asked me to help bridge the gap between uh, Motown Detroit and Motown L.A. So I'm going to take you back to Detroit. For the record, I'm younger than the Funk Brothers. By far. Oh, Those you had guys. to put in the by far, right? <laughs> <laughs> Those guys were between 12 and 20 years older than I. And the big thing in Detroit uh, was Detroit was a factory town. You had autos and then you had Motown. And to work with Motown was like the creme de la creme job. But I didn't first work at Motown. My first uh, work connected to Motown was with Holland Dozier Holland's breakaway label Invictus. And I was a staff pianist over there, and the main reason for that was that the Motown Funk Brothers were under contract, and they weren't supposed to work anyplace other than at Motown. So uh, when I started over at Holland Dozier Holland's label, I first met the Funk Brothers because they would come over one at a time. <laughs> and eventually, Johnny Griffith, um, Earl Van Dyke would appear. And uh, Eddie Bongo and uh, Jack Ashford were there right from the very beginning. And after being on a few hits with Holland Dozier Holland's Invictus label, that's when I finally got the call to do something with Motown. And my first session over there was for The Temptations in the original Studio A. And I got to tell you, I was so happy I danced. <laughs> it was a big thing to uh, work with Motown in those days. And uh, I can tell you a little bit about the original Studio A. Uh, you know, the big thing in recording in those days was separation. And Studio A, it looked like a fantastic studio to us, but in fact, it was a converted basement. And when you went. Of a house. Of a house on West Grand Boulevard. And when you went in, one of the big differences between studios here and studios in Detroit is when you rented a studio in Detroit, the drums stayed there. The drummer often brought his own cymbals, but the drums were there. The piano 
the organ, the amplifiers, everything was there for consistency of sound. In L.A., of course, as you know, when you say studio, you get a studio, four walls, and you better bring everything else you want. But uh, anyway, getting back to the original Studio A, just so that you'll know, um, so-called separation, James Jamison's bass was all on my piano track. In fact, it was rocking the piano. The whole room was moving, so everything was on everything. And the reason that it sounded like such a party in those days on the records is because it was a party. So that's what was happening with Detroit. And I can also tell you that in Detroit, uh, unlike Los Angeles, it was a very cliquish situation. There were a very small group of musicians that played on all these hit records. The Funk Brothers were the core, and they would augment it with some of us younger guys on occasion, and then also when people were out of town, then we would come in and play. And that's why you will see some of the other guys outside of the Funk Brothers on some of the credits for those records. When I came out in 74, Motown in Los Angeles, as the other gentleman can attest to, was a very different situation. Motown by that time had become more of a conventional record company with different sounds and not the strict Motown sound. And uh, that opened it up a bit creatively, uh, moved it away from uh, what you were used to, but some very, very nice things happened uh, out here. And once I was in Los Angeles and I worked with Motown far more regularly than I did even in Detroit. And um, finally, when the box set came out, uh, I used to kid Paul Reiser, who you know was the chief Motown arranger, I said, Paul, I said, my goal has finally been accomplished. I said, all I really wanted to do when it was all over was be on the box set on the same, with the same credit as you, Gene Page, Dave Blumberg, and my buddies, Clarence and Don here. And to that extent, it was all a big success. So that's what happened with Motown as it related to uh, LA. Clarence. I just, I just want to say something. You just, you just really flashed me with the, the amplifier and the consistency with the drum set and the amps. So somebody had a brilliant idea out here, because we all brought our own amps, that to save the cartage, they were going to have us, they put a little box on the floor in front of us, and there were five holes in it. And they said, okay, Wawa, you plug in there. Okay, Don, you plug in there. David T., you plug in there. Wilton, you plug in here. And we're going to just monitor out of this one amplifier. Well, that was the worst idea. I mean, that was so bogus. We, we ended up fighting because each of us had a little volume control. <laughs> and so, you know, we'd start playing and I go, wait, wait, wait. And I turn myself up a little bit. And then Wilton would say, wait, wait. And he turned up the bass a little bit. Then Wawa turned himself up a little bit. It was a disaster. So I just, when you said that, it just totally made me remember that. Um, James Carmichael used me a lot on, on those temptation stuff and I someday I would really love to know which songs because I don't remember which songs I played on but I thought that amp thing was a funny story <clears throat> okay and I'll give you a little history I always tell folks I was in LA when Motown arrived basically they started out using different studios here Hollywood sound the sound factory and then they bought what ended up being the Motown Studios. Actually, the history of that, that studio originally was called Poppy Sound, and it was built by a lady, Arlene Rosen. Actually, her and her boyfriend at the time, Norman Johnson, she built it for him. 
and I was there when they actually did the blueprints for it. And once Motown came out here, and I think they liked what was going on, they decided they were going to stay. They bought Poppy Studios, which then became what is now known as the Motown Studios. Now, are there any questions? What about you? How'd you get started? <laughs> I'm supposed to be the moderator. Okay, but oh no, it's real easy for me. They called. I went in and played. They liked it. I started charging them more money. They didn't like that. <laughs> I was happy at Motown. I did start double scale there. They weren't real fond of me for a while, but uh, we made a lots of records and we made a lots of hits. And from that, actually, I can say it now because it's funny. Barry and I are good friends. I'm in the acknowledgement section of his autobiography right because on. I recorded there that much. Right on, Clarence. Are there any questions? They sent out royalties? <laughs> well, now that was one of the things about Motown. Sometimes you had to be reasonably diligent about getting your money, but we won't go into that in length. <laughs> but not for Sessions. No. Sessions were handled by Ben Barrett. It was, mm. it was an interesting period. Yeah. Oh, getting paid by Ben wasn't hard. But getting royalties was a bear. Yeah. And Ron Miller used to tell me he called it the plantation. Um, <laughs> so it was not, he, you know, they took his publishing, so all he had was his writers. And he'd go up to Joe Bat and say, you know, how much will you give me for my writers? And they'd give him $10,000, and he, you know, wouldn't take his writers' royalty. Oh, yeah. But that was Ron Miller. Uh, but the thing about Motown that was so much fun is that you could end up every week, you'd have session after session after session. And you'd have a rhythm date, you'd have a horn date, you'd have a string date. And in those early days, like it was Gene Page, James Carmichael, and I. And subtle was not an issue. You didn't try and write subtle. You had to throw everything into your arrangement because you never knew what was going to end up in it. And if Gene Page threw everything into his, and James Carmichael threw everything into his, and you came in subtle, they're going, what are you doing? So uh, it was quite an experience having a horn session, having a rhythm session, having a string session, and realizing the whole different mood in the room. When the rhythm players were in a session, Don would be on it, David T. Sometimes it'd be two bass players, definitely three guitars, two keyboard players, and it was all pandemonium. Uh, horn players would come in, and they were like animals. And string players, <laughs> string players would come in and they were like school teachers. It was as quiet as can be. But it would be day after day after day. Horn date, rhythm date, string date, horn date, rhythm date, string date. And one time I got a call from Hal Davis who, what would happen is he'd be up in his office, he'd have his Motown slush. This is a drink that he used to serve people. And songwriters would come to him with a song. And I, I might have worked and been up all night, and I get home and I get to sleep, and it's about 11 in the morning, and I've had an hour of sleep, and the phone rings, and it's Hal. He goes, Dave, Dave, get down here right away. So what's the problem? He says, I want to cut a tune. So I drive down to Motown after an hour of sleep. It's now 1245. He says, I want you to do strings. We have the session is coming up, and I need you to do a string chart. I said, when's the date? says, 1 o'clock. Oh. I said, it's 12.45. He says, that's right, you got a couple hours, get it to me by 3. So, of course, I sat in his office and I wrote out a string chart and copied it out and got it to him, and they got it, and it never came out. And that was kind of the way it was working at Motown. He did a lot of work, and once in a while something came out, 
and once in a while something really hit. But you were learning all the time, and you were dealing with the best players in town. Harry Bluestone on violin, oh. couldn't beat him. And oh, Don yeah. Peake on guitar, this guy on piano. Yeah. yeah. We did uh, a song called My Forever Comes Today, and it was another, it was um, in the big studio, it was called Mo West, and Clarence is there, and it was Holland Dozier Holland. It was Holland and Holland. They had split up. They'd been Invictus, and then they were doing, we were doing this song. I guess it was Hal Davis <laughs> doing the song. And in the middle, we go into a breakdown, and Clarence starts to play something with this big smile on his face, and the groove just took off. It's where you learn to really appreciate a session keyboard player like this one. Thank you. Thank You're very you. welcome. One thing I'd like to say about Motown, and this was with the artists, they spent the time to groom them, which is a thing that was kind of missing in after the 70s and 80s, the reason they had so many hits is they spent the time with the artists. And Lamont Dozier said something which I like. It was tough at Motown. It was hard. It was always very competitive. But the thing was, Barry would give you a chance, and he would give you a second chance, even if you made a mistake. So what happened is uh, lots of people, and even Paul Reiser said this, they really got a chance to learn their craft because basically the way you get good is by making the mistakes and realizing how not to do those again. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that. Going all the way back to the Detroit days, people ask me all the time, how did one company manage to, excuse me, let me turn that off. How did one company manage to dominate the pop charts uh, for 12 years in a row, a little tiny record company, very, very tiny. And I answer that question by saying that they used to actually have a studio system that was similar to the Hollywood studio system. People don't realize that the um, Temptations first 10 records bombed. They actually had 10 releases on the street that bombed before they actually got their first hit. But as the old saying goes, um, Success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Nobody even remembers your bombs. And Barry Gordy knew that in the early days. Uh, the Supremes had, I think, about 12 bombs in a row before they finally got their hit record. And uh, when you look at the similarities between the Hollywood system, the same thing was true with Humphrey Bogart and with Betty Davis. Those guys at the head of the company would believe in an artist and actually give them a chance. And that led to all of the success. The other thing I want to point out is that similarly, uh, the system was stronger um, than the individual parts of that system. Many of the producers that had hit after hit at Motown left Motown not to have a single hit afterwards. Mm, interesting. And that's because the system was so strong. The other thing that uh, I can report to you is that when it came to songs, Barry Gordy believed in a song to the point where he would go in and record the song, and if he decided in the singles meeting that it wasn't happening, he wouldn't say, well, the heck with the song. He'd assign it to another producer, assign it to another artist, assign it to another artist and producer, and keep that. And again, talking about a similarity, um, Irving Thalberg at MGM once said that great movies are not made, they're remade. Oh. <laughs> and it was the same similar process. You go in, if you believed in the song in the first place, if you believed in the film in the first place, guess what? You stick with it and you make it work. And right now, we're in a stage of a throwaway kind of a society. People give an artist one shot, and if it doesn't happen, they're out the door. Same with a song. Uh, people don't really have the kind of conviction 
that was necessary to bring that through. So the net of this all is that once that system got into place where everybody knew that they were free to create, that kind of opened up a whole creative door, and that's why you had hit after hit after hit after hit. Most people are lucky if they have one hit in their lives. For Motown to do it consistently over and over again for a 12-year stretch before they kind of opened it up to the neighborhood, and then even then they've had hits since that period. But that was the big reason for it, exactly what Clarence was talking about. I'd like to add something to that. The other thing that BG did was that if he liked a track, he would stick with the track. We'd make a, a track, and it would be for The Temptations, and then the next week we'd find it. The Commodores <laughs> had a new song with the same track, but they, they just take the chord, they just use the track and write a new song to it. Or there were several times they would recycle these tracks. So they had that same philosophy about the track. Right. In fact, I remember at one point watching the Jackson 5. They used to come to the studio because they weren't far enough up in line yet. And it was Gladys Knight, um, Diana Ross, and the more the Detroit acts. And it was amazing because you look at them as gigantic stars. Now they used to be waiting in line because it was. It was kind of like... It was like General Motors, except it was music. You know, it was the factory. And uh, to, to add what uh, Don was saying about <clears throat> tracks, a lot of times the producers would not have a song title. Yeah. And you wouldn't know what the song, and that affects us now in our royalties for our special papers fund. And you go and say, well, what about such and such song? Well, you're not on the contract. Well, I know I did the song because I remember the track where your name was not on the contract or it must have been a different title. So that was another bad discrepancy about working with Motown and the producers. You would not know the name of the songs. <laughs> I, had a, I had a wonderful phone call from Susie Ikeda, God bless Susie, saying, Don, do you remember a, a song called Dancing Machine? And I said, no. She said, well, you recorded it with a J5, and uh, they released it. The, the original title was something else. It was something... Anyway, Susie Ikeda straightened it out at the union, and all of a sudden these checks started showing up about a year ago. So God bless her, thank her, because that was one of those examples where they, we played the track, and it was, then they changed the name, and she caught them, man. She caught up with them. God bless her. Actually, that song, I have a couple of friends named the Paris Brothers. And thank who, you. Tell them. Tell them. Who had written a song called Sex Machine that they brought to Hal Davis. And Hal kept that song for six months and turned it back to them, and told him, man, nah, I don't, I don't hear it. Next thing you know, he's taken their groove and called it "Dancing Machine," and they <laughs> didn't get a single royalty. Wow! So uh, the way Motown worked, I think the the point of grooming artists is really critical. That their stage presence, how they were on stage, how they danced, whatever they did—I mean, they were working eight, ten hours a day, just getting their act together. With production on records, what I found fascinating is. To have 10 songs or 12 songs on an album, all they needed was one or two hits. The rest was filler. But they would pit every one of their producers against each other. So they might have 20 or 30 songs done on one artist. And the, the committee would meet and they would talk about the song and decide which was the strongest one and put those out. And if they got one or two hits, they were winning. I had never seen anything like that because I had friends who produced at Dunhill. They did an album. They had 12 songs to do. They did 12 songs. That's the album, but not at Motown. Motown would put, put uh, every one of their great producers against each other, plus new songwriter producers. And whoever won got the release. The other person had done a lot of work and didn't get any money. 
Competition. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, for me, like I said, lots of the stuff. And I think they did the movies tastefully. There were lots of things that could have been said that weren't said, some things that should not have been said that were said. But it was real life. You had lots of different characters, and you had this was like a melting pot of music, thought, and people. So what you saw in those movies was the polite way of bringing it out. What I saw in Dreamgirls, there are a lot of things just like Clarence mentioned, but probably the big one that came to my mind is it kind of painted the Barry Gordy character as the bad guy. And the suggestion being that the only way to succeed was to be ruthless and uh, to step on people, and it wasn't like that at all. There are people that had plenty of complaints against Motown. You've heard some right up here. But the basic idea that uh, you know that it was some sort of uh, crooked kind of a situation in my view, was totally false, and that was the biggest problem that I had with the movie Dreamgirls. The biggest problem I had is I didn't hear one song that Motown would have cut, not a single one, and if it had been in front of the committee, they would have passed on it. But Jennifer Hudson, the vocal that she did was an unbelievable vocal, one of the best vocals I ever heard on an average song. So the thing about Motown was the song. They had great songs, and then when they got a songwriter like Valerie Simpson there, the kind of material that she turn out just took it to a whole new level okay and i think i'd like to say at this point because i know when we did the um, paul riser um, seminar i saw a change in how people perceive barry gordy because the truth is when everybody was hustling it was like yeah they did paint barry as the bad guy but i heard lamont and paul riser both say something which i think needs to be repeated which was had it not been for him we wouldn't be hearing any of this. You know, right. nobody ever likes the boss. But, you know, the boss is not a very great job. But the truth of it is, and I've seen the guys because they just did a tribute to Barry back in Detroit a couple of weeks ago, and Sonny Burke and Smokey Robinson. And the thing that Sonny Burke told me about it that I liked is how many people realize later on in time is like may not have liked him, may not have liked him, but you know what, this guy had to go through a lots, and a lots of people benefited from it. Oh, man. He also knew what was a record. Yeah. Uh, one time he didn't. We did a song called um, Love Hangover. Hal Davis cut a ballad, um, went up, took it up to Barry's, and Barry, Barry in his little soft voice goes, I thought you were bringing me an up-tempo. So Hal goes running back to Mo West and cuts this up-tempo, splices it on, and brings a nine-minute song back to Barry. Now, now he's, he's at Barry, and it's, it's kind of the form that you hear on the record. And Barry goes, I wanted a three-minute song, not a nine-minute song. So he goes back, and they cut the tape and put it in the trash. The next day, Barry calls up and goes, you know, I think I like the long version. <laughs> so now they pull this tape out and splice it back in. Yes. That becomes Love Hangover, and we put strings on it, and they put out this album. And uh, Mark Gordon calls up Hal Davis. Well, Mark Gordon and Hal Davis used to be partners. And uh, Mark produced The Fifth Dimension. So he calls up Hal and says, So, uh, Hal, uh, what's the story on Love Hangover? Those goes, oh, it's an album cut. Sure about that? Yep, album cut. They're not going to release it as a single on Diana. Nope, it's an album cut. Great. So he goes into the studio, copies the exact arrangement instead of using strings, uses the synthesizer, puts the fifth dimension on it, and jumps it in the charts, 84 with a bullet. First week out. So now Barry has two weeks of meetings, 
And the end result of the meeting, he's screaming at people. He says, I want Love Hangover to go to number one on Diana Ross. And Love Hangover went to number one on Diana Ross. And that was where I learned what is a hit record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm afraid I have to go. And I want to thank everybody very much. And I'm so honored to be with you all. Thank you for Talk coming. Don't forget your amp. Oh, yeah, right. I might get right I have to tell oh. one more story. So I was running out of a studio after a session, because I had another session, and I grabbed my amplifier, I had my guitar, I got about three steps, and I realized I had not unplugged the amplifier from the wall, because it went doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dale? Uh, yes, and actually, a friend, one of the guys who was the promotion person, and if we understand, promotion person is generally the person who carries the brown paper bag to those people who are going to be funded, if I can say it as politely as that, yeah. Given scholarship. <laughs> right, right. So basically, I mean, that was the nature of the record business in those days. If you had a good record and you had a little cash and some friends, then it got hurt. So yeah, that, but that was for every record company. By the way, Del, my understanding was that uh, Motown, like A&M, functioned through independent record distributors. Uh, at the time, Pickwick was big, yeah. if not uh, number one. Uh, later on, it became part of an American can or something. Yeah. But anyway, uh, at that time, it was possible to get into the record business without being CBS Records or without being Capital uh, through the independents. And many people did it with uh, varied degrees of success. And if you read Barry Gordy's autobiography, he gets into that, and he talks about an occasion where he and his sister had the same release, and she decided to release uh, her part uh, through Chess Records, and Barry kept just the regions in Detroit. And he made more money with one region than she made with a national release through somebody else. So the short answer to your question is basically it was through independent distributors uh, that don't exist at this point. It was wide open. Yeah. Like the Old West. By, by the way, I don't know if uh, you remember this day, but there was a certain point in the uh, mid to late 70s when Motown put out an edict here in L.A. that uh, no arranger could really hear the strings and the horns all together, and they insisted on separate sessions for the strings versus the horns. Do you remember when that period was going on? Anyway, when I got the news... I experienced it, but I didn't... Well, anyway, when I got the news, I said... Uh, we could live with that because they have to pay the conductor twice. Three times. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, going back to the Detroit days, the part that I can report on is that the secrecy was such that we didn't get any credits. And uh, I remember the big thing. I think the first time that Motown provided credits was on the What's Going On album. And part of that was for secrecy. They didn't want the world to know who was in the back really making all of this music. And um, that was definitely a factor. In fact, um, my first credit didn't happen until I left town. I think another factor is, is that um, Motown was rhythm section driven. And those players were very unique. If they could get a record with just vocals, backgrounds, and rhythm section, they had a record. Horns and strings became things they added later. So that, that was their focus. If they could get a great rhythm date, uh, with a great groove, then they had a record. If they did everything all together, then their concentration was too diffuse, and they they would lose something in the rhythm. Yes. By the way, my experience with that was that uh, for the arrangers, the arrangers were pretty much called by the producers. 
the uh, singles meetings for the com were for the completed product in the main, but for the most part, the producers were calling the arrangers, or at least that's where I was getting my calls. Oh, and to answer your question for yes, they did. And a lot of the time it wasn't necessarily the best choices, but you were kind of pigeonholed. If there were certain things they thought you did well, they would call you to do that. And actually it got to a point too where sometimes you come into a session and you could see that they had written out something, which was something you played on another record. I mean, it was kind of like they written the lick sometimes, which was kind of like it worked in that record. It doesn't necessarily work in the same place just because you wrote it. I'm never sure why I get called or don't get called, but I know uh, the guy who did most of the work out here was Gene Page. Uh, I went to see Gene one day. I had just gotten a gold record, and I said, Gene, I just got a gold record today. And he goes, really? He says, congratulations, I just got 15. <laughs> and I would do five, six tunes in a week. Gene would be 25 or 30. And they liked Gene because Gene, Gene was like a, a classically trained pianist, and he would try and write the extreme registers for the strings in unison. And that was where I learned that a unison is a very strong sound, especially if you have virtuoso parts. And they loved that. It, it just it was something that rode really well over a rhythm section. Yes. <laughs> well, I can answer that in two ways. Um, Early days and later days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. For my dates, usually the most I could get out of the guys was 14. Uh, 16 was like a big date. 18. Okay. Uh, yeah. See, you had bigger budgets. Uh -huh. Anyway, Paul Reiser, uh, that question came up when he was out here doing the seminar, and he said that his uh, favorite configuration uh I believe total sixteen. Yes, am I correct? Wasn't it? Uh, oh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, nine, yeah. Nine, 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 three. Yeah, nine, three, and three. Uh, nine, four, and three. Nine, yeah, four, nine, three. I'm sorry, nine, nine four, four, and three. I believe was was yeah, his con his configuration. And like I said, that was large. I think one of the things that um, occurred uh, for all of us was because of the fact that they were only going to go so far with the string sections, and they were very small. Uh, that you had to write in a specific way in order to get the maximum sound out of the minimum number of, of strings. And I think, uh, you know, going back to Gene Page, one of the things that was most amazing about uh, Gene Page's writing, uh, in addition to the wonderful melodies and everything, was this amazing ability to come up with a sound that would cut through on any track, even when it wasn't unison, with a tiny number of, uh, of strings. Gene would frequently use eight, two, and two and a harp. And something happened, well, one of the things that happened is, is um, there was a young arranger named Jerry Long who very few people ever heard of, and for a short period of time, he, every time he got hired, he did an arrangement. It was very creative, and it became a hit record. And Eddie Kendricks was one of the people. He'd kind of disappeared, but he was a student of Nadia Boulanger. Paul Reiser did all of the rest. When I started, it was 12 people, and then it got to be 18. But what happened is Gene Page did Barry White, and everybody goes, how did he get that big string sound? And he had 24, 28, or 30 strings, and that's why it sounded so big, so now everybody wanted bigger sections. So it kind of evolved. But they were, uh, the joke used to be eight with mirrors. Yeah, well, sometimes on the second take, it may have been recorded along with the first take on the strings, too. And probably the third. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
actually, we didn't know all of the people. We just know they had a committee. Stuff went into a room. A decision came out. <laughs> so it was, it was A.N.R. It was Barry. It was Barry's sisters and brother. The committee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, uh, you might have seen on the records the corporation. That was different. Uh, from the committee that uh, we've been referring to all night. Most of the stories that, that I have, I was never at any of those meetings. Those were uh, given to me anecdotally by some of the artists and some of the other participants. But basically, they would have a singles meeting once a week. And then they would come in and they'd play all the singles. And um, they would judge what was uh, suitable for release and respond to those decisions. Yes. Well, I, I really believe Barry Gordy came out here to be in the motion picture business. Yeah. That was his whole purpose of being out here. And he did what he accomplished. You know. Also, to answer your question about the Funk Brothers, uh, the way that I heard the story is that they were offered the opportunity to come out in the very beginning and actually passed on it, uh, which I think was a major mistake. Um, but they eventually did come out. Eddie Bongo and Jack Ashford did come out here. I used to use them all the time on my dates. Uh, Earl Van Dyke uh, never made it out here. Uh, well, he did come out. He came out. Well, he wasn't here that long, though. No, but he did some okay. sessions. But um, uh, it was mostly Jameson. Johnny Griffith. Jameson came out, and we used to do things together out here all the time, too. But again, it was slightly late. Uh, Jameson came out after I did. And also, um, some of the other guys went to uh, to the to the East Coast, like Bob Babbitt, who you see in the Funk Brothers movie. Uh, he went and worked with uh, Tom Bell in uh, with Philadelphia International. So the guys came out. Oh, Robert White eventually came out and then went back, and he was here briefly. But again, I think that they missed the timing because if they come out exactly at the same time in '72 when Motown made the move, I think things would have been different. Yeah, we'd have been out of work. <laughs> I had a chance to work with uh, Marvin Gaye once, and uh, I had heard about him from Kim Weston when I was at Venture Records, because she said whenever Motown would do a review at the Apollo, there were three people that she would go to hear. One was Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and Gladys Knight. And to me, those were the definitive Motown artists, really the top ones. And one day I get a call, I guess Gene Page was busy, were out of town, so Marvin had called, and I had to do two songs for him. One ended up on the Miracles, and the other uh, was going to be on him. And the song was called, uh, I said, what's the title of this song, Marvin? First of all, I go over to his place. He's in Culver City, and he had all these stories, and he told me about his machine gun in the closet. And I said, you're the brother, brother, brother man. What's all this machine gun stuff? He says, well, you got to protect yourself. <laughs> So then he gives me this song, and the song is called You Sure Love to Ball. And I said, Marvin, you're never going to get that played on the radio. <laughs> and he said, he looked at me and he said, you white boys always think when we black people talk about ball, we mean sex. He says, that means to party. <laughs> so then this record comes out, and I hear this heavy breathing on it. <laughs> and I realized it was quite a party. <laughs> yes. Oh, here, I think one time we had, as I recall, it was three keyboards, four guitars, bass, and two drummers. That's In Detroit, uh, it was typically two drummers. That was the standard. 
And the uh, largest one that I did out here actually had five keyboards. And it was the reason I remembered it, it was because it was kind of a joke, all of us running into each other. It was me, Michelle Rubini, John Burns, Sonny Burke. I don't think you were there that day, but you might as well have been. Larry <laughs> Mahobrick. Yeah, yeah, but not that day, but it was, I remember it was five keyboards on one date, and we couldn't believe that they booked it, but they did, and we did it. It was nope. interesting, too, because uh, David T. and I used to have a running joke. David T. was so stylized and such a great guitar player with, with such a unique sound that you would see a guitar part on somebody's stand and say, play like David T. Uh, <laughs> of course, you got to know what that is. And sometimes you could write for the guitar players, and sometimes you couldn't. Uh, for that very reason. And with bass parts, I learned to write bass lines from studying James Jameson. Uh, the only problem with that is if James was playing an E and you're an E flat, it doesn't work the same way. And I started to be very self-conscious about my bass lines because I'd get these bass players and go, oh man, don't make me play that. I've got something much better than what you can ever come up with at home. <laughs> and so I go, I guess I'm not very good at writing bass lines. And then the first bass player I ever used was Carol Kay. And Carol recently started to tell me, she says, you know, the only arranger I never had to change their bass line on was David Blumberg. And I went, my God, maybe I was pretty good and didn't know it. <laughs> and I realized the guys I had working for me didn't want to read. <laughs> Yes. Five keyboards. How many parts? Oh, some, oh, some of them, they had separate parts, and in some of it, it was just no 16th note left untouched. <laughs> <laughs> when I started, uh, to me, not, not down in any of my cohorts here, but <laughs> one of the great rhythm arrangers to my book was James Carmichael. And when I started as a young man writing with him, he would write every note for the drums, keyboard, bass, guitars, every note written out. And I asked James after I got to know him better. I said, Brother James, I said, you write all these notes for the guitars, the keyboards. I Fills and everything. Everything. I, and I said, why do you write all this stuff? And he says to me, so what, Brother Marv, I tell you. He says, you see, I don't speak that well. And I don't have to explain myself. So all the voices are right there where I want them to be, and I don't have to say a whole lot at the session. And that's why I write everything out. He was a remarkable uh, arranger for for rhythm section. On the other hand, it would take a long time. Yeah, oh, no. you, you go home with your eyes bleeding. Oh, yeah. No, and the parts he wrote worked. You know, they were intricate and they worked, but it was it took a long time to get it to where it felt right. You could play the chart and read it, but that was not the essence of what made the music in Motown. So it's like, okay, now we've got the reading out of the way. Now, can you make it live? By the way, Ray, just for the record, the standard fare at Motown, both here and in Detroit, was two keyboards. Uh, we were talking about the novelty sessions <laughs> with five. <laughs> okay, it's getting close. It's what, five or two? Is anybody, any other questions? I hope you all have had a good a time as we've had here today, and we thank you for coming out. Good afternoon. No, no, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, 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 thank you. Oh, no, no, no. I could just thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.